0: Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition or NASP again. I'm Tamara Hajat. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's in Cincinnati, Ohio. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Peter Liu.
1: <laughs> Yay. Thank you. Thank you. From
0: the Nationwide Children's in Columbus, <laughs> Ohio. Peter, how are you?
1: I'm good. So, tomorrow, you know, one thing we have not talked about mm-hmm. that is a big deal in your life is mm-hmm. uh, you got a roommate I, right? <laughs> a couple months ago. I do have a new
0: roommate. I feel like we need roommate. to talk
1: about this. Yes.
0: I do have a new roommate. Um, Actually, she's like a fur mate.
1: <laughs> fur mate.
0: Okay. Yeah, like a f- furry roommate you know how like people say this is my fur baby i don't call her a fur <laughs> baby <laughs> she's a roommate that lives rent free in my house um she's a cat what's the cat's name her name is Zainab bug and she goes by bug
1: uh what zainab bug
0: so ana is grapes in arabic okay. and i love grapes i usually say my favorite candy is grapes <laughs> Uh, I like that so I was like what is a, the thing that I like the most in the world and I was like oh grapes but I didn't call her grapes because I wanted to be like smart and be like oh I want to call her an Arabic name yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> grapes grapes is not a bad name and, Yeah. and cat, I was like
0: but... oh I should have probably called her grapes and then for some reason I she's staring at me right now she doesn't like me to talk about she, her exactly <laughs> I adopted her to Three months ago. Oh my gosh, she's just jumping. She She does does not not like you talking talking about her.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm just waiting for like a cat to jump on the screen and like scratch her face.
0: I look up uh, cats for adoption. I see her. I'm like, oh, she's so cute. She's like one year and seven months old. You know, (laughs) that's what she she told you. That's what she told us that she's a year and a half. (laughs) But then my vet says, based on our teeth, she's lying to us wow and that she's three years old yeah she's lying but you know you never question a lady's age wow yeah but she's cute she's adorable so i go and so i call him i'm like oh is she healthy they say yeah so far we know she's healthy you can come and look at her i go and there's two people looking at her i'm like oh you know like how in your mind (laughs) you're like rolling on them. i wish
1: people could see the facial expression (laughs) just made the uh her. Uh, anyways yes
0: <laughs> and then i had her and she's very sweet i'm like you're coming home with me so but like
1: i so as a person who has a dog i don't know that i'm a dog person but you know i like my dog i just feel like don't i feel like dogs are so nice and like happy to see you i always have this impression that cats are like scheming trying to kill you you know <laughs> is that not True.
0: So when I first got her, she was very sweet and cute. And she like, lay uh-huh. on my and lap. Then her real side came out. <laughs> She's like, they told me I have a 30 day return. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so she had to behave for so 30 days. So she
0: knew <laughs> that I can return her in 30 days. Oh. No, no. But then I got her very comfortable beds and now she mm-hmm. just sleeps in her beds. And I'm like, oh, why did I get you these comfortable beds? You're not cuddling anymore. <laughs> but then sometimes at there was some point where she would just sit in the corner and stare at me. And I'm like, why is my cat staring at me? And um, my sister I mean, was like, do not stare back because oh my God. she will get it as a challenge. <laughs> See, She's like, cute. why would
1: you want... A pet who's on edge about to kill you at any given time, you know?
0: No, she's adorable. Oh man. <laughs> she greets me at the door.
1: Okay. Because yeah, she she's knows like, my, I'm... my servant is back.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: Give me some food. <laughs> Clean my poop. That's true. Oh,
0: that's true. She um, so I mean, this this podcast is about poop, right? So she does <laughs> no. not uh she poops in the litter box but she does not cover her poop I'm trying to train her okay. to do that and her litter box is in like the guest bathroom and it's covered and you can barely see it but mm-hmm. um when i step out of my room i'm like there's a smell one of us pooped, Yikes. and it's not me <laughs>
1: <laughs> well so, <yeah. laughs>
0: when i clean her poop she's looking at me in like Oh, I know you're cleaning my poop, my servant. Yeah, I'm basically your servant.
1: You're not selling the idea of having a cat, to me at least. She's
0: adorable. Yeah, Yeah, I love having a cat.
1: We've got to move on. (laughs) We've got to move on.
0: (laughs) All right, so do you want to introduce our topic?
1: So first of all, you know, it's now February, 2023, and it's Black History Month. Yes. So we wanted to start or continue a conversation that, um, at least on this podcast, we've had really ever since our first season. So this episode is going to be more about diversity, equity, inclusion. I feel like we are people are talking about that everywhere, but we really want to talk to someone who has been taking that and then applying it practically to try to improve his healthcare system. So we want to talk to Dr. Hannibal Person about how we can actually do that in our job.
0: Dr. Hannibal Person is an assistant professor of PETE's GI at the University of Washington, and he is the medical director of the Gut Brain Health Program at Seattle Children's Hospital. Um, One interesting thing is that he completed his training in pediatrics, psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry at Mount Sinai. How amazing is that, Peter? That's really, really cool. He is a clinical researcher um, with interest in the disorders of the gut brain interaction and specifically the application of psychological and integrative strategies to address chronic abdominal pain and other GI disorders. He also does some research in racial disparities in pediatric GI and pediatric GGBI assessment and treatment with the goal of developing interventions to ensure racial health equity. So he is the perfect person to talk about this topic. He gave a lecture at NASPegan and we were like, yep. He is a great person to have on our podcast.
1: And just as a reminder, so even though we usually say this at the end of the episode, so first of all, we are on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and we would love to hear from you guys. So if you don't already, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Bow Sounds and on Facebook at, at @pedricjpodcast, Podcast. We do get a lot of suggestions and some of our episodes are because of suggestions we get from social media. So make sure to follow us.
0: Yes, follow and us. Tamara's
1: waving at her cat, who I'm sure is not waving. At her
0: she's not she's just glaring at me <laughs>
1: yeah. okay all right moving on well on to the show
0: dr person welcome to bow sounds we are very excited to have you today thank you for making the time to join us um and uh, welcome I guess.
2: <laughs> oh no! Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Huge fan of the podcast.
0: Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you're a huge fan. <laughs> um. So we're gonna start with our first question, and uh, some people find this question a little bit challenging. But in one sentence, how would you describe yourself?
2: Oh boy! Uh, I have a like professional answer and then like an actual personal answer. I think I'm gonna. I'll go with the personal answer and just say um, black gay nerd, socially awkward. G I G I G I. Ah,
0: okay. That's that's great. G I three times. (laughs) (laughs) Three times. Well, I uh, my one sentence was I'm a human.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think mine was. Princess Peter I might I don't know whatever my princess wife Peter. Uh, came up with something particular princess whatever
0: oh, all right yeah, anyway Princess Peter we need yes, to scrap
1: yes. that question all right so our second question which is kind of like a new question so um I haven't been to Seattle probably I have some cousins who live there but it's been probably like a decade or two since I've been there so we all know like the the stereotypical touristy things to see uh maybe like Pike's place Space Needle But what do you think is something that people should check out that maybe most people don't is a little bit under the radar, perhaps?
2: Yeah, I would say you have to get on a ferry. Um, Yeah, okay. I, (laughs) I just spent a day in Bremerton. Uh, Our ferry ride, gorgeous across the water, Um, beautiful neighborhoods. Um, Midnight Bridge and that neighborhood is just so picturesque, so quaint, and just lovely businesses, lovely people. Um, (laughs) It's totally worth the trip, um, not only for the just uh, the just picturesque beauty of this landscape, especially by water, but also just these neighboring communities that are just truly lovely.
1: So what was that town you said? Bremerton. Bremerton. Okay. All right. I can tell
0: you that every year for my birthday, I go to Seattle. Really? I love Seattle. And I like to explore every single place in Seattle. I've been to uh, Mount Rainier.
1: Oh,
2: yeah.
0: That's great. And my plan for next year is to go to Olympic Park. And then maybe from there, go to Alaska.
2: And don't forget, stop in Port Angeles. Um, It's just such a fantastic town. Gorgeous oh, views dangerous. at the Olympics, not that far from the rainforest there and everything. Really lovely little place to kind of stop on your journey. I would highly recommend it.
0: Is it a good place to stay?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I spent a weekend there. Lovely, you know, just beautiful parks, like played tennis with my partner and you know, then went hiking. Just gorgeous.
0: That's amazing. I'll definitely keep that in mind when I'm planning my next trip to my yearly trip to Seattle. <laughs> So, um, just going a little bit into our topic, you are interested in advocating for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you gave a talk at NASPAGAN and it was an amazing talk. I'd like to start off with, how did you become interested in advocating for DEI?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm biracial. So, my dad's black, my mom's white. And even from like a young age, the like, idea of race fascinated me, right? Because I had all these experiences about how it was perceived and navigating the world as someone who is biracial. And so, it's always been sort of this area of interest for me personally. But I think as I entered you know, college and then medical school, th- this idea of sort of Um, multiculturalism in the form, you know, kind of as this translation to humanism, and how do you sort of in this nation of so many different cultures, so many different people, how do you deliver effective healthcare to everyone? It sort of started there. But then as I did more looking into health equity, particularly racial health equity, it became clear that we have discrepancies and disparities here. And as a person of color, and then watching my family members you know, interface with the healthcare system and seeing kind of the barriers they faced in moments where, you know, I had an uncle who was in a hospital in Florida who was not getting treatment for venous thromboembolism effectively. And I was on the phone from New York trying to mm-hmm. speak to a doctor saying, you need to treat my uncle. You just see these experiences. And it really sort of has motivated me surrounding health equity in all forms, addressing social determinants of health. But for me, particularly anti-Blackness in healthcare practice. And that's become kind of a thread throughout all of my work and I think is really crucial to the pediatric gastroenterology space, not only because we're sometimes lacking in research and literature to inform our practice. But, you know, just globally, I I think our training, how we are, you know, kind of advancing fellows, how we're all educating ourselves as attendings. There's no one right way. There's there's a lack of evidence basis. And yet we still see health disparities. And so I think my personal story, my experience heavily motivates me. But it also comes from my experiences as just a healthcare practitioner and sort of seeing how this plays out in
1: real time in my clinical practice. I mean, I would say like anyone in medicine, it's like, you know, so clear that these inequities exist. And it's like, finally, we're starting to talk about it more and more. And in part, because of the work of people like you who are really trying to educate the rest of us about where these disparities lie and how we can try to address them. Before we go on, maybe we'll start at the beginning with some basic definitions. So what do people mean when they talk about DEI and what is URIM and what does anti-racism mean?
2: These are fantastic questions. I think every time we talk about these topics, we should redefine what we're talking about because truthfully, I, I sit on listservs for people in medicine, people elsewhere who are talking about these topics. And I've seen full-on debates about what is EDI? Is it DEI? Is it yeah. J-E-D-I? Like, we debated that We yeah, said we said these did, questions. Yeah. Yes. Um, so the reality is it, it is what we make it. And every time we have conversations on this topic, we should all reconvene and make sure we're using the same definitions. But to me, when I think about EDI, I think about the important concepts of diversity, meaning that we need different people sitting at the table. And the importance of that is not just, oh, it's nice to have different people. There's really robust literature about the role of cognitive diversity in terms of solving complex problems, which we face as pediatric gastroenterologists. And so to me, diversity is not just you know a placeholder or not just something that sounds nice. It really reflects best practices. It reflects how we are best going to support our efforts to treat children with chronic gastrointestinal conditions. And so, I see it very much as a surrogate in terms of having different people there, not only for having different cultures, different walks of life, different life experiences being represented in the ongoing conversation, the ongoing work that we do, but also really providing the best team possible to tackle complex, issues that we're trying to face in our field. And so that's how I perceive diversity. Equity is a really, it it is deceptively simple in terms of how it's defined. But when you actually think about it, it kind of morphs into this beast to try to actually apply. But really, it's about applying uh, and providing everything that different people need to succeed is the way I like to think about it, right? And so a lot of us sit in this place of equality, meaning, oh, well, you know, We're having an issue where medical students are struggling to afford textbooks. Let's create a $500 stipend from our budget so everyone gets $500 for textbooks. That's equality and that's great. But if I'm someone who's coming from a wealthy family who could easily afford the textbooks versus the person next to me who, um, you know, is struggling to scrap together the dollars to even afford a laptop to access the online material. Equity would be giving them everything they need to succeed. Well, I don't really need much. And that's really where we want to head. It's not just equality, which is sort of a nice first step. Like, let's recognize people have certain needs or deficits, and let's try to parse out resources so everyone has them, not just a subgroup that tends to get the resources. But truly, equity is what we need. And that gets a bit more hairy and technical when you actually apply it, particularly in the medical space. Certainly inclusion in its most basic form is really just everyone having a seat at the table, everyone be able to share, everyone be able to sit within the richness of their lived experience and their identity and feeling supported in what they do. But that's what EDI entails. And it's sort of taken on its own form in terms of being slapped as a label on all these different things, whether it be a training, whether it be a program. But at its heart, it's really about creating inclusive, equitable, and diverse healthcare spaces that I think are crucial to really furthering the work that we do. When we talk about topics like anti-racism, we're really talking about that sort of thoughtful action toward countering instances of racism and other bias in our day-to-day practice. And it can really be seen as taking on this broader role in terms of reenvisioning the structures of our healthcare system that work to perpetuate racial and other inequity. And so that's sort of how I think about those terms and underrepresented medicine. So th- this is really interesting for me because I'm the product of a pipeline program for minorities in oh. Madison. Back in the day, there was a program called Mark that was part of Temple University School of Madison, and they it was a fantastic program funded by the NIH that recruited minorities of all categories, all non-white high school students, college students to do biomedical research. And this was the idea of sort of increasing the pipeline of non-white people in medicine. But there was this debate, right? Well, people of certain backgrounds like Asian ancestry are not necessarily underrepresented. And so, you know, the debate rages on. I don't have a strong opinion about it, honestly, because I think Racism, oppression is racism and oppression, regardless <laughs> of how represented you are. Right. Um, but some people will use the term underrepresented in medicine to talk about folks whose racial ethnic identity is less represented in medicine. Some people will use that term more broadly across anyone who's non-white. I think both are reasonable uses of the term. I think you just have to define it when you're talking
1: about it. Just to kind of follow up on that a little bit. So you mentioned that this is something that in medicine, people are starting to recognize more that this is a problem that needs to be addressed and that's valuable. And uh, within our GI community, there was this inter-society group on diversity that was created. Can you talk a bit more about that? I'll talk about it with
2: the honest response. I'm not a member of it. I wasn't elected to it, but I hope to be a member of it. Uh, But what? uh, Oh, my goodness. It's so exciting. It's it's, it's, it's this it's this fantastic collaboration between all these national G.I. groups and they're sharing data. And this is so crucial because so many people are doing work in the space in parallel when they could be collaborating. We don't need 20 different people to reinvent the wheel we just need everyone to come together and create meaningful tools and interventions to sort of remedy this and so i think this collaboration between all of these groups with very brilliant people leading it is a huge step forward for the gastroenterology hepatology space in terms of sharing all of our knowledge sharing all of our experience sharing our data and working in collaboration in a more disease specialty specific way To address poor concerns we see across the gamut of lifespan in terms of health equity.
1: And and yeah, even though you may not have been elected yet, I'm sure after this comes out, they'll be like, we need this guy in the group. So you'll be there.
2: I'm so lacking in committees. I just need another committee.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. Right, 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 right. Oh, man. Yes.
0: So just to kind of talk a little bit more about EDI in medicine. So when we talk about diversity or diversity, either or either, right, in medicine, do we mean diversity in providers, in patients, clinical trials, studies, anything else that we need to think about when we're thinking about um, EDI in our hospitals or in our clinics? And why is it important to talk about EDI and why does representation matter? So
2: when we talk about diversity, I think it's really important to recognize that diversity without inclusion and a psychologically Mm -hmm. safe space for the people you're sort of bringing to the table doesn't count, right? You can recruit Mm -hmm. as many underrepresented in medicine people as you want if they're not free to share their voice, their perspective, their experiences, or they quickly leave your institution because they do not feel supported or experience sort of these adverse events related to their identity. You haven't really achieved diversity. And so I think that's the first thing I would always her in terms of conceptualizing diversity and its role and what it means, I think it's really important to think very systemically. We sometimes, when we talk about this, we focus on numbers solely related to physicians or nurses or this or that. And the reality is you need to achieve diversity across the institution, including administration. Like all these people are playing hugely important roles. They're making decisions that influence patient care on a day-to-day basis. And if you achieve success in one pocket of your institution in terms of Diversity, that doesn't make up for other pockets that are affecting the operations of your institution and patient care that have not achieved that. And so I think it's really important to think incredibly holistically in terms of across the spectrum, really uh, incorporating uh, diversity and inclusion. The other thing I'd offer is that there's been a number of research studies that really speak to the benefits of diversity. And that goes beyond what we talked about in terms of cognitive diversity and addressing complex issues, but in terms of medical training, in terms of even patient outcomes, at least in internal medicine, Black doctors tend to take better care of Black patients. And I don't offer that as saying, well, every Black doctor should be dispatched to care for the Black patients. We unfortunately, sadly, had that model back in the day with things like the Flexner Report and ideas that Black physicians were not capable of caring for the white body and should just be relegated to caring for quote unquote the lesser black body. Um, but you know, we do see better outcomes when we have diversity. Um, and we see better patient care. And so that's why this is of crucial importance and particularly in the PHGI space where, you know, we have a growing body of literature about racial health and equity in terms of many conditions we treat and other conditions that really have not been rigorously interrogated. And that's why this is of um, crucial importance. I'd also point out recent literature that suggested that the entry of underrepresented in medicine um, candidates into fields in pediatrics and certainly into subspecialties has not increased over the past um, 10 years or so. Uh, and in fact, in subspe- some sp- subspecialties, not gastroenterology has decreased. Um, and mm-hmm. so we are not making progress in this space mm-hmm. at all. And we have to take that very seriously given where we hope to evolve, where we hope to be. And so I, I think that uh, kind of just underscores the importance of diversity being a focus in what we do.
1: Do you mind just going over the benefits of having a diverse uh, healthcare provider team Across
2: the board, it's been shown, whether you're talking about biomedical research, whether you're talking about medical training, whether you're talking about clinical practice, diversity matters. Mm -hmm. Um, And research is an area that has a lot of issues in terms of diversity, not only in terms of recruiting diverse communities of subjects for certain research, but also just participation of underrepresented in medicine and research careers. And that we could talk all day about why that is. I do think it affects the quality of research. And I also, you sort of wonder, right? We're doing all these studies that are largely focused on people of European descent. And looking at demographic trends, right, we're seeing an uptick in multiracial people. We're seeing an uptick in communities of color in terms of the population. Are we really doing research that's going to reflect our practice 30 years from now? And so, that's why diversity and patient recruitment really matters. It also speaks to the need for community engagement because even when you see some of these studies that are focused on BIPOC communities, there's this ivory tower feel, where people are formulating questions and designing studies in their offices, but not engaging community. And that's problematic, not only because whatever you design is not going to really reflect the input from the community and the community needs, and there's a potential for harm, but also within this model of justice and reconnecting with communities that have been traditionally underserved in healthcare, certainly that connection as a part of research or other healthcare practice is crucial to healing the wounds and closing the void that has occurred between these communities in healthcare. And so we really need to do better in that regard when in respect to diversity.
0: You were talking about studies and I want to mention one study and the results came out uh, pretty recent. It was conducted in 2020 by the California LA research team and by the Inner Society Group on Diversity. There were 1,200 survey participants and 20% self-identified as from the URIM population. And I'm going to say some uh, numbers and I'm going to ask a few questions about what your thoughts are on these numbers because these are eye-opening. So about 78% of non-Hispanic white respondents were very satisfied or somewhat satisfied with racial, ethnic diversity in the workspace. But 63%, almost the same percentage of non-Hispanic blacks were somewhat or very unsatisfied. They also looked at the societal leadership perspective And what they saw is that 76% of those in leadership roles were very satisfied or somewhat satisfied with the diversity level compared to 70% in non-leadership positions and 85% of the leadership group comprised of non-Hispanic whites and Asian, whereas the rest, which was 12, about 12% was Latinx. 6% non-Hispanic Blacks, and less than 1% non-Hispanic American Indian Alaskan Native. And these are eye-opening results. And it shows that there's a discrepancy in different ethnic groups of how they see that there is diversity in the workplace. So some ethnic groups think that there's a lot of diversity and others don't. Why do you think there's a discrepancy between what non-Hispanic Blacks and other participants from other groups in the diversity and inclusion and equity in their workspace? Uh, And there's one thing that you mentioned, something about hypocognition of privilege, something you mentioned in one of your talks. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think hypocognition is a super helpful framework to think about this because I think it's incredibly prevalent and it affects all of us in different ways even beyond EDI. So, hypocognition is just lacking the mental schema or the mental awareness and capacity to manipulate information surrounding a topic, right? So, I could have Hypocognition surrounding what car mechanics deal with in their work. And so, when my friend who's a car mechanic starts talking to me about difficulty in their job, I might just be oblivious because I just, that's not something I think about. That's not a world I know. And so, therefore, I might be impacted in terms of my ability to understand what they're going through in terms of their vocation and accurately assess what they're dealing with, including potential things that put them in jeopardy. And so, hypocognition applies to privilege. And this idea that we each have certain things about our identity or certain things about our life that afford us certain advantages. And we have things about our life that disadvantage us. And when it comes to race, right, if you're White, you're afforded privilege related to your whiteness. If you're non-white, there can be a lack of privilege or even disadvantaged. You could actually be disadvantaged by the perception of your racial identity or ethnicity. And so the hypocognition piece comes in because many people, especially from non-oppressed white backgrounds, do not necessarily have the knowledge base, the wherewithal, the awareness to understand the complexities of racism. And I'll give an example that one exercise that's sometimes used in hypocognition workshops is you separate the group by their gender identity and you take people identify as women and people identify as men to different sides of the room and you say, what do you have to do to get to your car after work, especially special you do, right? And you'll find typically that the group that identifies as women will list a number of things they do to maintain their personal safety from making sure that their mace is at their side to asking a security guard to walk them to only parking close to the entrance or in a well-lit space, what have you. Meanwhile, the men will provide a very short list of basic safety things and that represents hypocognition. The men in the group really are not thinking about what it means Means to be a woman in our society and have to venture on your own into the situation where there could be a lack of safety and what that means in our society and our reality. And the same things happens when it comes to race. And so when I hear this study and I hear about this discrepancy, I, I'm not really, the numbers are absolutely eye-opening, but I'm not really shocked <laughs> because this has been my lived experience in this space, talking to people about issues of racism, bias, and other inequity, and having folks like look at me and say, mm, oh, oh, that sounds awful. Or let me intellectualize this paper you're talking about and try to poke holes in it. Or oh, wow, that's really unfortunate. I wish I could do something about it. But at the end of the day, it's hypocognition. People are not horrible people looking to harm others or support inequities in healthcare. I think just people are hypocognitive about a lot of these issues. And that's why I'm so passionate about medical education in this space, because I think that's the remedy to address people's hypocognition and give them tools, vocabulary, a framework in
1: their brain to understand these concepts. From my perspective, it's like exactly what you described, the hypocognition where we don't really recognize that people's experiences even in the same workplace can be totally different. After George Floyd was killed, we had a panel of Black physicians talk about their experience as a physician at our hospital, like our friends, our colleagues, including one of my best friends in GI, Des Desiakob. I think I had no idea that what he went through every day was so different than what I went through every day. And it's like the same concept, recognizing that people have different uh, situations, even if on the outside, it seems like we're doing the same job.
2: Oh, yeah. I was in an interesting conversation related to my research a few months ago, where I was talking about how when I'm on call, I always have my scrubs either with me or laid out uh, mm-hmm. on my kitchen island to change if I get called in. And someone was like, well, why do you do that? There's scrubs at the hospital. That's for the OR anyway. Just come in what you're wearing and change. I was like, no, I'm not going to be in a nice car at two o'clock in the morning, driving quickly, driving quickly. To the hospital, I'm going to have my badge front and center. Then I'm a physician. I'm going to be dressed in medical garb because if I get pulled over, it's not only to my jeopardy if I get, you know, in any way harassed by law enforcement, but who's going to like if, if, I, if something happens, who's going to take care of this child? Like I need right. to do everything in my yeah. power to safely arrive at the hospital. And that's not something I think my white colleagues ever think about.
1: One other thing that you mentioned during your talk at NASP about EDI is this maturity model how that this is a concept that may kind of evolve over time. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah, that model is really interesting. And I'll take a step back and say, all these are models. All this is theory, right? No one has the secret sauce to fix this or else we wouldn't be in this situation. So I I think Mm -hmm. delving into these models and seeing what works and what doesn't for you as an individual and for your team, was really helpful, which is why I'm very into the education piece. But that model has been something that has very much resonated with me because I think it, it explains that progression from moving from this place of checkbox EDI, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh great, we achieved ten percent, you know, in positions. We did two grand rounds related to equity topics. We yeah. did to an actual culture where you have. Uh, real commitment to equity, diversity, inclusion, and eventually justice that almost feels a little more seamless and integrated into what you do versus something you're just thinking about and checking boxes. And when I give talks sometimes on that model, I talk about HR EDI versus mm-hmm. real world EDI and this sort of That's, model. Yes. It's like, this is rule-based EDI where you're not allowed to say certain things and we want to... <laughs> cut the number of complaints related to racism, to HR down by 15% in this sort of model versus let's create a culture where people feel safe and supported, where instances of racism and other bias are surfaced quickly or addressed. There's honest conversation about it. There's a, a lens of improvement. But also a lot of this work surrounding inclusivity, including how we relate and interact with our patients, becomes just part of the fabric of the institution and the individuals. And so that's the dream. It's definitely not something that happens overnight, particularly in a medical center. I do see a lot of places that ha- are still very much stuck in this anti-racism 101 space where they're just mm-hmm. sort of like, well, we'll do a workshop on this and okay, we're done. And you're not In that maturity model, at that point, you're very much stuck at the beginning if you're not working through the steps to engage all levels of leadership, all members of your community in this work. And also deriving benefit from this work, right? The benefit's Mm -hmm. not only internal in terms of hiring and retaining amazing people and addressing complex issues. Numerous businesses have really shown how community engagement through this lens actually works to strengthen your reputation as an institution and can even be lucrative in certain situations. And so I think sometimes throw around EDI, like this kind of dirty word or this dirty secret, oh, we have to admit that we have racism at our institution, like mm. reframe it, rebrand it. Yeah. This is actually a tremendous opportunity for your institution to not only right past wrongs, but move to this amazing space of accomplishment of existence that not only works to serve patients, that works to close racial health gaps, but also lets you be this beacon in this work. And so I don't think EDI has to be anyone's dirty secret. I think it's an amazing and an evolution forward.
1: Yeah. It's like you're saying, there's so much research right now focused on patients of European descent. This is the way to change that, right? The culture of the institution is really kind of identifying where there's a need and trying to help the entire community heal. Yeah, you'll definitely get more
2: participation from oppressed groups and studies if there's trust and a relationship mm-hmm. there, if the study is designed in a way that incorporates their community input. I, I think really what it's about is, you know, creating a welcoming space for everybody and that bleeds into research. It bleeds into the pipeline, right? You know, mm-hmm. how are you, are you inspiring young children of color into careers in healthcare? You know, what is their experience in healthcare? What do their parents say think about healthcare? You know, you're not going to accomplish any of this without a better relationship.
0: And there's uh, something that Dr. Mm-hmm. D.J. Bolton mentioned. He said something about pseudo-inclusion, where institutions do EDI, and you check that box, and there's the sense of pseudo inclusion where the person don't actually feel included. So they're not doing the things that is necessary for people who might benefit from EDI to be included. So my question is, how how can we navigate systems barriers? What can institutions and society do to improve EDI, and make it an actual inclusion, not pseudo-inclusion. And to say something about another model, there's the breakthrough model that I think you created. And I watched your presentation at NASP again, and you mentioned that this is something that you're planning on implementing in your institution. Can you tell us a little bit more about that breakthrough model and what can do better, what other societies can do better, what institutions can do better to actually do EDI correctly
2: I think the first thing I would say is that there's no one right way to do this, right? Everyone is coming from different worldviews, different backgrounds. And what works for me in terms of getting better about gender bias is not necessarily going to work for the next person. Um, And that speaks to not only the need for a multi-pronged approach to this, but also an iterative approach. If you're leading your team, you're the head of the feeding program at your group, and you really want to tackle this, um, what you do the first time around might be partially successful. It might not even be well received. You know, you kind of have to keep trying. And there's this idea that in healthcare, we're like, we're constantly putting out fires, right? We're just running from one thing to another, whether it be a patient call or whether it be a pandemic. And yet racism in healthcare persists. And so, Mm -hmm. we can always put it on the back burner. We can always treat this kind of smoldering, nasty process as not the biggest issue in the moment because there's a fire in front of us. But that being said, if we don't start pouring water on it, it will persist. And so, I do think that idea of sort of persistence and perseverance in that space is really crucial no matter how you're going to approach this. And it goes beyond one a one-off workshop. It goes beyond a one-off Grand Rounds lecture. Um, It's really a commitment. I would heavily recommend that commitment really... incorporate clear action items, roles, and metrics. If you have no idea where your group is at, it's totally reasonable to do some sort of self-assessment, look at various equity measures in terms of access, outcome, what have you, and then target it with metrics for six months and see what happens. And that might seem crass to say about a process that involves not only human lives, but also this deep systemic process. But the reality is, This is where healthcare gets better through QI, Mm -hmm. and there's no reason it can't be applied to anti-racism and racial health inequity. Uh, And so sometimes when I talk to people, there's a sense that, oh my goodness, real racism is this big nebulous thing, and how are we going to address it? And I'm happy we're doing something, but what do you do? And I say to them, okay, well, chunk it. If you're finding that children of color on average wait two more weeks to have a diagnostic endoscopy for the diagnosis of IBD, figure out why. Fix it. It's not going to solve racism in healthcare, but guess what? You just improved part of a diagnostic outcome measure in those children. And I think that needs to happen. It needs to happen across all of us. It's not enough to say, I'm a celiac specialist. Yeah, I don't know about all this health equity stuff, or I largely see patients of European ancestry based on the primary disease process I treat. There's still room for EDI, there's room for thoughts surrounding health equity in your work. And I think the question I'd be asking if I was in that space is why aren't I seeing more children of color? Because clearly children of color do get celiac disease. Are they Mm -hmm. not being screened? So, I think we just need to all put this into our our busy workloads and our our shoulders that not so much is on. We all need to get with the program and do a little bit. And that little bit from all of us will create a lot um, and I think PHGI is a, just a rich, amazing space for this to happen. And so I think that's where it starts. And certainly leveraging and valuing the time of experts in terms of like not just turning to the one person in your group who's a minority and saying, oh, hey, figure it out. Um, yeah. But instead, either engaging outside expertise or protecting that person's time if they have a passion and expertise right. in that area is, uh, is super crucial. In terms of my work, my background is in gastroenterology, but also psychiatry. I'm boarded in child and adolescent psychiatry and general psychiatry. I'm very passionate about neuroscience, especially as a tool for behavioral change. And really, I've been doing work in kind of equity education for a while. But as I did my psychiatry training, my focus became using neuroscience to help people identifying correct patterns of bias and so my breakthrough bias intervention was really based in cognitive behavioral therapy dialectical strategies and acceptance and commitment-based psychotherapy in order to help people from their personal barriers and kind of defensiveness and discomfort with addressing these issues, recognize their patterns of bias and adopt and master skills in anti-racism. I've been tremendously lucky in coming to Seattle Children's Hospital, which is a a institution that has really committed tremendous resources in the space, including protecting my time for this work that I partnered with Roberto Montenegro, who's an MD-PhD, a child psychiatrist here who discovery has the same ideas I did without us ever talking. So now we're now collaborating on something called Bias Reduction in Medicine Pediatrics Plus, which will be a first of its kind educational intervention built out of my intervention and built also out of Bias Reduction in Medicine by Molly Carnes at University of Wisconsin, which is started as actually an anti-gender bias intervention, but we will be essentially doing a randomized control trial across all 450 faculty members here to see if our intervention is successful through this sort of behavioral science model. But I am super excited about it. I'm happy anyone listening wants to talk about it. I can't stop talking about it, but I think it's a a nice new approach to some of this work. And what I love about it, we're really tailoring it to be very disease-specific. So I think a cardiologist taking it will be talking about cardiology. A gastroenterologist will be talking about gastroenterology, which I think really makes a difference in terms of helping people relate to the material. And then I won an award and got a bit of additional support to move some of this work to partner with the Society of Pediatric Liver Transplantation. So I'll be doing some work there with their advocacy committee, doing a needs assessment of equity issues across their involved transplant centers, but also trying to tailor educational interventions to really address the pre-transplant listing, post-transplant plan process. So lots of exciting stuff going on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. So is this like a course or um, what's like the format of this intervention? That's four workshops, each
2: are two Uh hours. And there's about 30 minutes of pre-work before each one and about 15 to 20 minutes of post-work. It's still evolving. We're piloting it now, making little tweaks, but that's pretty much the
1: framework. Yeah. So finally, it's like we're, instead of just a talk every year, doing something to try to make change.
0: Yeah, Uh, congratulations uh, on your award. Yeah, that's awesome. awesome. Thank you. It seems like this is like precision medicine, right? Because you're just tailoring it to different areas. So that's great. Yeah, I think people need
2: skills, right? Again, we treat anti-racism like this behemoth that can't even be engaged with. And I'm like, you know, Mm -hmm. the first time I held a gastroscope, I didn't know how to intubate the esophagus. Mm -hmm. But someone showed me and I kept doing it until I could do it. Mm -hmm. A lot of skills in anti-racism can be very concrete, they can be, you know, you can just adopt them and do them, but you need to be taught and provided with the adequate supervision support to master them. And I don't see
1: it as being that different. One thing you mentioned in one of your earlier talks was the concept of psychological safety and anti-racism education. What do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, I think in medicine, we really struggle with psychological safety. It's uh-huh, sort of yeah. this idea, this kind of culture you create where folks feel very supported, but they also feel comfortable making mistakes and they don't feel like they're going to be vilified and blamed for mistakes, seen as a learning opportunity. And I think we try to do that. We try to do that with M&M conferences and things like that. But truthfully, medicine is highly hierarchical. And so there's a lot of fear, a lot of people covering themselves and sometimes misrepresenting things because I think we're all just a little fearful about being the one who made an error or didn't get something right. And that culture is not very amenable to anti-racism transformation. You can imagine if me having to fully face all my biases and really understand them in order to correct them, I'm not going to sit in a meeting with a bunch of my colleagues and be like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely racist against this group, right, right? Definitely yeah. very dismissive of this group. We just, we don't do it because we're just very worried about our perception. And so, psychological safety works incredibly well in these situations, and certainly in the business world, certain industries have benefited in terms of creativity and productivity, in terms of creating more of these cultures. But while we're left with the hierarchy structure of academic medicine, which serves its purpose. There's a lot of oversight. There's a chain of command. It, work, it works really well in some ways. We're really, I think, sometimes stymied in some of this transformative work. And I do think, at least on a, a microsystem level, in terms of our like individual teams or our divisions, trying to craft more of a supportive space to have not only this conversation, have the support in addressing these issues and being okay with not saying the right thing or not knowing something in a moment. It's really important. It's just not something I think we're always so successful at in Medicine.
1: Yeah. So, like, stop, we stop pretending that this is a problem for other people and not for ourselves. Oh, yeah.
2: You've Gotta put the virtual virtue signaling away. <laughs> right, um, right. A lot of us are very happy to talk about how much we care about it, but we actually have to do something.
0: <laughs> and it's great that we're part of an amazing society in Aspagan that I think in the past few years has been doing a lot of things to implement EDI. So can you tell us a little bit about what NASPGEN has been doing to to implement EDI? I know I joined the diversity SIG recently because I was like, I need to do my part. Uh, but what other things has NASPGEN done? And people listening to this, how can they change the narrative? What resources are there out there, other than the ones that you told us, that they can go and educate themselves? And if they want to help or they want to do something or want to change the narrative, where do they start? Where can they go?
2: Yeah, so I, I would really applaud NASPAGAN again for its work in this space. I think the diversity special interest group is fantastic. Like coming off of the last NASPAGAN meeting where we just had a tremendous experience, not only all connecting, but also meeting with trainees interested in fields in gastroenterology, there's a clear And really, I think, an impactful effort occurring there in terms of increasing our pipeline. I uh, am highly appreciative, of course, of the opportunity to speak about what I do at our last meeting. And I was really appreciative of others who spoke on similar topics. And I'm always most appreciative when people are talking about a non directly related topic, but include issues of health equity Mm -hmm. in their study on IBD or EOE or whatever it is. So I just really want to applaud what I see as a real, just burgeoning cultural transformation in terms of consideration of this important aspect of everything. we do. And so I'm thrilled to be a member of and thrilled to be involved in the special interest group and in some other areas that I think this is really becoming part of the focus. So it's really just such an exciting time. In terms of what we can do, the way I always think about it is like individuals and teams, right? Because individually, we can you we a lot of most of us have a certain amount of control over our time. Obviously, if you're due to scope, you have to be at scope. So, like individually, you can, you can map out your own destiny in that regard. And so, what I really encourage people to do is start with a self-assessment. And one resource I really like is the Anti-Defamation League. If you just go online, has a personal self-assessment of anti-bias behavior. That's a quick survey you can take that just allows you to reflect on what is your participation in anti-bias activities. And you can see real areas where you feel weak or non-engaged as a way of directing your future work. There are other assessments like Harvard's implicit association test or IET that are free online. I recommend people use them with caution, not only because it's emotionally difficult sometimes to get feedback on like your potential implicit bias but there's some variability in the the you know responses or the results you will get on that testing so you should have to take it with a little bit of a flexibility but there's certainly ways to start with your own uh, kind of individual self-assessment and that can go beyond formal measures that can just can kind of be looking at where do you hang out where do you eat who do you talk to on a day-to-day basis what does your workspace look like what does your workspace look like for your patients you know or is patient material or patient materials reflective of who you treat what language is being used for things what is the accessibility of that language there's a million and one questions to ask but that can be part of sort of your own work but i do think what i love to do in my work is team based and i like cuz i like teams because teams promote accountability and really i think it starts with the team you will have people in your group who are just take to this like a fish in water and are really very successful at this. You'll have people who struggle and that's fine. It's the same for everything else that you have to minister, right? I Mm -hmm. still don't understand the pancreas and yet here I am. And I (laughs) lean on my colleagues who know what that thing does. Right, And we're all in this together. And so I like team-based approaches, which is why I'm a big fan of the divisions and groups coming together in this work, committing regular time to it and kind of sharing their not only individual journeys, but figuring out a team-based journey, including goals for the team within this kind of anti-racism work and metrics and reassessing an iterative process. I think it's really important. Or down yeah. the
0: street, looks like the pancreas exists. That's what I heard.
1: <laughs> Some people would consider it, I think Jose Carza refers to it as a fat pad. Uh, is it much more than that? Who knows? But none of us are pancreatologists, so we have no idea. But okay, Dr. Person, thank you so much for talking to us about this very important topic. Obviously, in our work, in our society, in our profession, this is still an evolution to get closer to our goals. I think those links that you mentioned, the resources, we'll include those in our show notes. So listeners who are interested, check those out. We could talk to you forever about this topic. And we didn't even get to like you know, some of the fascinating work you do on looking at DGBIs and the fact that you're a psychiatrist and a pediatric GI. Oh, wow, like, that's amazing. We didn't even talk about that. But we, alas, you know, well, we have to just have you come back in the future for another discussion about that. But looking back on your career thus far, obviously, there's still so much to for you to accomplish and things like that, but you've already done so much so far. Looking back, what do you think has been the most valuable advice you've received and what advice do you have for our listeners? Oh my goodness. I've been blessed with just such amazing
2: mentorship in my life. I would say the most recent thing that has been sort of my go-to mental image that has helped me so much in my work, um, it comes from Evelyn Sue, who's, I guess, Mm -hmm. was recently featured on the podcast. We meet regularly. She's my division chief. And she talked about the concept of kind of building an airplane while you're flying it. And I think... (laughs) Impedes today, RSV, whatever all that's going on, I think all of us feel like especially at the junior faculty level, feel like we're just trying to keep this thing moving forward oh, yeah. while still trying to construct new things to support the work or innovate the work or evolve the work. But I often, in moments of complete frustration, I just use that image not to terrify anyone or think that we're going to crash, but more so to think <laughs> that like, it's possible to take care of patients, do what we need to do, but continue to build structures around us, um, mm-hmm. whether it be EDI or otherwise.
0: Well, Dr. Person, thank you very much for joining us. This was a pleasure. It was a pleasure having you on Bow Sounds. Any final words for our listeners?
2: Oh, goodness. I would just say thank you to anyone who listened. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm more than happy. Again, I would just reiterate that I think a lot of people are doing just such amazing things in this space. It's just such a hopeful and amazing time for this work. And I would just say we all need to be on the same page. We all need to talk. We all need to collaborate. I think NASP again, the diversity SIG, and these other spaces are a great place for that. But please, 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 anyone listening who is interested or already engaged in this work, reach out. I think we need to strengthen our network in PHGI With folks who are interested or doing this work. I think that is going to be the true way that we really support this and support its success.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for joining
0: us. Thank you. If you liked what you heard, it would be great to support us by going on a Sprout page. And there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASBN Foundation, you can also get there through www.naspagan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs.
1: As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with the advances in the field.
0: Thanks for listening. Thank you all. Bye. Bye.